hello. <laughs> what? Oh. Hey, John. Oh, hang on, Dan. I've uh, I've made an error here. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're. I'm hearing you through your uh, like computer microphone or something. Yeah, uh, I've just now ah, put much in better. My normal my normal audio device. Hello. Hi. Are you, oh, there. See, that's much better. Yeah, it sounds good. I took it out because I I had a I had a uh, hard disk in the USB slot. Oh, cool! Cool, got rid of that. That, that I that I uh, that I need I needed that USB slot. Yeah, it's a laptop, see, so it doesn't have a ton of USB slots. Understood. Yeah, I Do watched it? the Steve Jobs movie last night. Ah, and, how uh, was that, Steve? Uh, Steve Wozniak, um, he wanted the computer to have a lot of slots. Right. And uh, Jobs thought that slots just meant that people would hook up their ham radios to his precious computers. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was like watching a war movie, basically. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. Is yeah, that what uh, it was like? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Were you a uh, were you a Steve Jobs fanboy? You know, I don't think I don't think I would call myself a fanboy of anything particular. Um I certainly liked a lot of what Steve Jobs did, but you know, I thought of him as a a regular person who happened to be very, very smart and very talented. And, you know, I, I never saw him as a godlike being. Mm -hmm. um, I never worshipped him. I never dreamt about him. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought that, I thought that the way that he understood technology and business is one of those things you're lucky to see once in a lifetime, you know? Right. Um, so if that makes me a fanboy, you know, then yes. But I, I don't. I don't think it does. I don't think it uh, makes you a fanboy. No. But I mean, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be upset to learn that that did qualify me as one. But um, I, you know, I've never been in the in the situation that I see a lot of people in, where they're sort of Apple fanboys or Apple apologists or whatever. I would never really put myself in that category i think compared to a regular human being then yeah i would be compared to you probably would be but yeah i, I feel like a fanboy is somebody that can't hear criticism and i think you're you're oh, more yeah. than uh, able to hear criticism about apple sure yeah yeah, no, there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of talk about Apple computers on uh, the internet and on podcasts. Yeah, so too too much. Uh, I would need, say too much. Yeah, we don't need to do that, John. Here, there was a time period back in the and we've talked about this off the air, but back in the old days, uh, I used to do. Gosh, I don't even know how many it was. I I was doing podcasts mostly about Apple. I mean, hours a day, every day I, I was doing, you know, the original, uh, talk show with John Gruber, Marco Armin's first podcast, John Syracuse's podcast and, uh, the podcast about Apple with 
Jim Dalrymple, the, uh, which we called amplified. I mean, all, all of these shows were basically just about Apple and I was doing that all day, every day, five, sometimes six days a week, just talking about Apple, talking about Apple, talking about Apple. And I completely burned myself out on it. I, I, I got to the point where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't talk or think about it at all anymore. Right. And I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm not that interested in that stuff. Like I want my phone to work. I want my computer to work. I barely you know? want those things. I want my computer to work. <laughs> oh, I want and my that's phone the, to fucking shut up. John, that's the other thing. I don't want to use a phone or a computer. I have to, cause they're my <laughs> job to do it, but I don't like, and that's the difference between Dan of 2019 and Dan of, you know, 2010 maybe, or, or earlier. I was just excited about technology and just, I want to like have a computer. And like when the iPhone came out in 2007, I was like, I was definitely an iPhone fanboy for a long time. And I was definitely yeah. a Mac fanboy for a long time. But now I don't, I don't want to use those things. If you told me that I could, I could make a living and, and at the same level of, of enjoyment that I get out of it now, but I didn't have to use a computer or a phone or any technology or even be around any technology. And then my life would be just as complete without it right now. Gosh, I would be so happy to get rid of all this crap. And I think that's the difference between me and almost everyone I know. Like most of the people I know, like they like their phones, they like their computer. They want to use this stuff. But for me, it's been work, dude. I started using a computer when I was 10 or 11 years old at a time when no one used computers at all, 10 or otherwise. And so I've been on a computer every day for 36 years. Oof. I'm done, dude. I'm, I don't need to use it anymore, but I have to because it's, you know, it's my job to use it. I use it for my job. I'm happy to have this job. I'm not right. complaining, but I'm saying if, if there was an alternative, I could make it a, a good living without ever having to do any of this stuff. Yeah, I would put that down. I'd never look back. If I ever strike it rich, you know, some big uh, dot com excitement business thing happens. You never hear from me again. You never hear from me. And these people who've made millions of dollars and sold businesses and stuff, and they're like still showing up on Twitter every day. I'm like, what are you? What are you doing? What's well, wrong that's with my you? Question. That's my question for you, Dan. You know the in rock and roll, yeah, music, yeah. You get you you, you get close to people who are. Uh, who uh, go on and become more successful. Sure. You, know, you, get, you get close to people and they become famous rock stars. Yeah. And, um, and you can't... Like real rock stars, not the, not the internet kind, but the legit rock star rock yeah. star. Yeah, rock stars. Yeah. You can't, you can't fall into a trap of resentment of your friends because being a rock star is such a kind of a singular... Uh, thing that happens to between one and five people, you know, right? Like, so, and and it's and it's it's related to talent, but it's also related to charisma. Right. It's, re it's related to just like looks, and showmanship, and timing, yeah. and and the and magic, you know. But like, I I am I'm very close to some people who are also millionaires, right? And they're also rock stars. Like it's hard for us to just go out to lunch yeah. because whether or not somebody would come up 
uh, every three minutes and bother us. Right. Uh, that they're afraid that that will happen. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm always the one that's much more willing to like, Hey, let's just go to the local pizza parlor <laughs> because I kind of enjoy sitting there while people like come up and, and hassle them. Right. Uh, it just, it's just one more, <laughs> one more fun thing in my day, Yeah. but it's, but they're over it, you know? Yeah, sure. But the thing about the tech world is that it wasn't just four people that got rich. There were thousands of people that some of them got rich just because they were standing there. Of course. You know, some of them got rich because they were user number one or or that, that, that freaking guy at Facebook that spray painted a mural and they, and they, they gave him stock instead of the, the three grand they were going to give him, you know, and and he ended up being worth a hundred million dollars or whatever. All of that, the kind of crazy play money thing that happened watching this Steve Jobs thing where it's like, oh, well, he he screwed up and they booted him out of Apple and then Next was like laughable and he screwed up there, but eventually he and the eventually he got hired back by Apple and all of a sudden he's worth a couple hundred million dollars or more, you know, he's the richest man in the world or whatever. Right. Now my question, and I can never ask Merlin this because he's too he's too sensitive. Oh. Um but you guys were standing around all throughout that whole thing. You yeah. were standing around. Twitter got invented, and you were in the first, you know, couple thousand people. I, that I turned were on down it. A, a job. They wanted me to interview for the like um, VP of technology Twitter job. I turned it down. <laughs> yeah, right. I right. mean, I'm not. I, I don't mean, regret that decision. But there's plenty of stupid things that I missed out on. Yeah, but a but lot like, of that because I I didn't live in San Francisco. Merlin has no excuse. But I didn't live in San Francisco. I was in, you know, BFE nowhere, freaking Florida, stupid, spinning my wheels, wasting time. Right. That's my problem. And because at least back then, it is completely different now. But back then, startups happened in San Francisco. If you weren't in San Francisco, you weren't you weren't really going to be part of that culture. You weren't really going to be part of any of that stuff. Well, why didn't you go to San Francisco? I wanted to. The uh, situation was at the time... We wanted to be close to family for a number of reasons. And, uh, and, and also like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about San Francisco or living there or whatever. And I wasn't in that situation where I never felt I had a very, I don't anymore, but for most of my life, I had a very, I'll almost call it like a 1950s sort of mentality of like, following the plan of like, you're supposed to like get a house and start a family and like be stable. And I don't know where that came from or why I believe that maybe because my, my grandfather was more, uh, of, of uh, like, you know, I didn't really know my dad very well. And my grandfather kind of filled that role for me. So perhaps I got some of his values. Uh, I don't know, but I completely missed out on all of those opportunities and saw many of my friends go on to become, uh, you know, multimillionaires, but for every, every one of them who did, there's, I know other ones who, uh, you know, who, who, who were in the same situation as I was like kind of on the sidelines, uh, being right. an idiot. Because, because with the rock thing too, like even the richest rock dude, I know maybe the richest rock dude I know is Duff McKagan and he probably doesn't ever have to like go get a job at a drugstore. I think he's probably set up. 
I'm sure. But, you know, the, the other rich rockers, you know, they're not so rich that they can just go buy a aircraft carrier. Like they have to, they have to stay in the world. Yeah. And all of them are still, they're all still in the world, right? None of them just, just disappeared to a cabin. Well, let me ask you this. At what, Except at Colin what, Malloy, maybe. <laughs> at what point do you have enough money for you? And what would you, what would you say the answer is here? Where you don't have to do anything again anymore. Well, it's true, but, um, like what's, uh, what are the interest rates now? I mean, you can invest your money and get what a 4% return. Let's yeah. say, yeah, I don't that know if that's right. four, four or 5%. Well, so that uh, put a million dollars in the bank. You're going to get $40,000 in interest a year. Right. With the money just sitting there. Yeah. So you certainly can live on 40,000 a year, not in Seattle, but pl- lots of places in the, in the world. Right. It would be wonderful supplementary income for most people. It would, it would. And the thing is that I think that a million dollars is still the threshold where if you wanted to go live in Guatemala and keep your million dollars in an American bank somewhere right. and get $40,000 a year. If your goal was, which mine was for a long time to live in Guatemala. Um, no, <laughs> uh, if your goal was to not work, right. That a million dollars is still like the, um, it, like at $40,000 a year guaranteed income, if you could, if you could, um, happily just sort of like go down to the beach every day and have a pina colada and a, and a couple of fish tacos and, and you and your scrappy little dog would walk up and down the beach in your cut off jean shorts and you were off the grid and the army never came with a helicopter to bring you back because you're the only one that can talk to the whopper. Right. Right. Um, I feel like that's my mom always said that my dad, my dad's dream was that one day he would have $50,000 in the bank. Yeah. Now this was in the 1960s. Right. So what would that be in today's money? Right. I mean, well, let's look that up. Yeah. Use one of those things. I'm not in front of a traditional. Let's see here. Um, 50,000 in 1960. Let's see what that. 50,000 in 1960. I'm going to guess. Before you say it, I'm going to guess that would be. Six hundred thousand today, four hundred thousand. Okay, that's a great guess. Yeah, that was a great guess. So he never obviously was able to get fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Although he, you know, he worked. He had a lot of. My dad was into a lot of investment schemes, right? (laughs) Or not schemes, but like he he had he owned ten acres of strawberry fields. In the center of what became Bellevue, Washington. Really? Uh, where Bellevue Square Mall is. My dad owned all that land, which is now worth, I think, you know, billions. 
hundreds of millions. Right. Uh, but he sold it in the early seventies, late sixties when Seattle was at a, you know, had a big economic crash. And so sold it. He probably had to sell it, didn't he? Well, I mean, not if he was good with money. Yeah. But I mean, I think he sold it for $5,000 and he Uh, paid 5,500, you know, he didn't, he didn't, uh, and my dad, you know, he started a couple of banks, but he wasn't a banker at heart. He started them because it was a time when you could start a bank if you were, if you were a lawyer (laughs) and, you know, and he understood that, that, uh, bankers got rich Right. He started a bank in in, uh, in Washington called um, Bank of the West, and then he was part of a bank up in Alaska called Alaska. It wasn't Alaska State Bank. It was a oh, that that bank is going strong. It was some they started some other bank. And both times the banks, I didn't uh, know you could just start a bank. Like let's yeah, just start a bank. Know. Start a bank. You get the money together. You get some guys. You, I mean, it was the it was the wild west out here. <laughs> yeah, you know? Seriously. But my dad, when he died, he didn't have any money. I right. mean, what what my dad also liked to do was screw the IRS, banks, and insurance companies. Like he he was he got a lot more pleasure out of screwing them. That would have been his term. Yeah. Then. Um, than like actually making money. And so when he died, like he had all these, (laughs) he just, he left a trail of financial destruction that didn't, that didn't, uh, slop over onto me or my sister or anything. It was just that there were all these people that were left holding the bag because his estate didn't have any. Now, how does that work? Like you're not responsible for your parents' debts, right? Like if, if he owed, if he owed a hundred thousand dollars when he passed away, you wouldn't like, but, but wouldn't his, his spouse would be, is that how that works? Yeah, I think. Well, yeah. I t- yes, I think the spouse would. I mean, what would have happened is if he'd had a if he had had an estate, a million dollar estate, mm-hmm. uh, all those debtors would have, or all those creditors would have um, been in line and would have sure. would have chipped away at the money, right? Um, but not having anything, you know, all they could do was just stand there and watch their watch their paper fly away, and you know, right. and that's not how. I would not like to die in debt to a bunch of people. That's not no. how I see the world. But that was definitely how he see, saw the world. Um, but I want enough money. I'm worried about having enough money that I don't have to work. I like I, I like to count money. I like even <laughs> when I was a little boy. If you yeah. gave me, if you gave me a dollar, I would prefer that you give it to me in nickels, uh, so that I could that's sit the bad, and count the banker it. in you right there. That's your that's right. <laughs> give it to me in nickels, and I'll sit and count it, or maybe you know in assorted change, so that I can stack it in different stacks. Uh huh. Um. And I, I love you know like when people started donating to our Patreon and mm-hmm. I, and when I, when they first started doing it and I was aware of it being there, you know, I kind of, I kind of turned, turned my back on it because I was shy of it. But as I, as I got more comfortable with the idea, I would go look at it and watching the number go slowly up was, um, 
was exciting to me. But then I started, you know, taking out my calculator and saying like, well, now let's see what that both ways. Like how much is that in a year? Well, how much does that break down to in a day? How much is that per episode? How much, you know, just the kind of, um, just, just stacking and restacking nickels Uh because I like, I like playing and money is a thing I like to play with, you know, not, not, uh, I don't play with it. I don't play with its purchasing power. I just play with it Num- numbers in a bank book. Mm-hmm. That was, that was always my problem as a kid. You know, I valued money as a, uh, I valued money for, for itself, not for what, what I could do, what it could do. Right. Sure. I had to unlearn that. But now I, I recognize in myself that, uh, a, an illness, a grave illness, uh-huh. which is sloth, uh-huh. <laughs> um, an illness uh, up to, uh, up to the level of a sin. Uh huh. Is this a new realization for you? No. Okay. But. I thought of it, I think as a sin, but I indulged it. Sure. Now I see it more and more as an illness because, Um. because it's going to affect my health. You know, it is affecting my health in the sense that I'm stiff all the time. My shoulders hurt, my back hurts, my neck hurts. I don't sleep very well. I, you know, the last thing I, I used to tease my dad because I would come over to his house, he'd wake up and he'd get out of bed and I'd find candy wrappers for little Hershey's mini candy bars in his bed. And I'm like, seriously, you're like eating chocolate. It's the last thing you do at night. So much, so much the last thing that you do that the, you don't even put the candy wrappers on the night table. They're just in bed with you. And he's like, Oh, shut up. You know, I was embarrassed probably by it, but like, I'm starting to eat a Hershey a little, you know, handful of Hershey's chocolate chips as the last thing I do before going to bed. Like it's, uh, um, you mean right before you brush your teeth thoroughly, right before I thoroughly brush my teeth. Yeah. But it's not, it's not, it's not eating related. It's just that. And the phone, the phone is my ultra enemy in this. I can just lay down on a couch and look at my phone and the phone just transports me to a hundred other word worlds because I follow a link. I read an article. I do some research on some terms in the article that I had never heard. And then I go look at some, some pictures of my friends that they posted and I'll look at that for an hour, just going and looking through my friends and seeing if busy Phillips is, is staying on top of her workout regimen and, what's John Hodgman put slime on today. And then I go look at some emails and answer them. And pretty soon, you know, the sun has arced across the sky and it's, <laughs> and what I don't do at that point is jump up and say, my God, man, let's get outside and breathe the air. You know, I hop up and I go, you're, this is repulsive. This is six hours of, a, of what was a beautiful day. And I get up and I walk over and I make a little cup of coffee and then I just sit in a different chair as though that was enough of a scenery change. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and it's like, well, you know, I got up. What are you talking about? I got up. I walked right, over here. You've done here. something now. You know, and I live in a beautiful place, right? I mean, the Pacific Northwest, you can walk in any direction. And, um, and yet it's just sort of like, well, yeah, but you know, my phone is right here and I, and it can take me to Paris. And I, and so I see that I already, I mean, doing these shows is hard Mm -hmm. work and it is work, Mm -hmm. but it isn't sufficient to, it isn't sufficiently well-rounded to stand in for a life. And so many days now I wake up, I do a show, I do some research associated with the show. I do some internet maintenance, some answering and, you know, filing and Mm -hmm. refiling. And then it's like, well, my work day is concluded and sometimes it takes five hours, but uh, there are a lot of people and I wish I were one of them that then are like, I'm headed to the gym or finally I've, I've earned my tennis time. Right. So in other words, you're giving yourself the reward that other people would give to themselves without doing the work that leads up to the reward. Well, if you work all day, uh, in a, in a steel Uh mill, I can see coming home and saying, you know, who I'm exhausted. I'd like to just sit on the couch for a little while. Although there are lots of people that work all day in a steel mill and then come home and work on their hot rod car all night. And in in fact, I think uh, there's more of those than are the, the desk people. Once you get, because once you get into a physical kind of a world, you tend to stay in it. If you're building things with your hands or using your hands all day, then it becomes a very natural thing for you to do, to use your hands. And, and so when you're coming up with other hobbies or other things to do, there are things that you do with your hands. So, you know, I know uh, the woman who's my, uh, tattoo artist, she's, you know, doing tattoos all day long. And when she's at home, you know, she's, she's continuing to do things with her hands. She might be drawing, she might be doing clay. She might be working in her garden. She might be building a new, you know, they built their own like desk furniture that's inside of their house, like built their own home office. You know what I'm saying? Like all that stuff. Like it's a very, she, she operates and interacts with the world in a, on a physical level. Her job requires physical, physically touching things and making things and doing things. And, you know, so, so her hobbies and the rest of her life kind of all are, are in the same. And so often people who are like in tech, like they're using a computer during the day. So when they go home, they're not disconnecting from it. They're doing the opposite of that. They're, they're doing something else. So this, that's my, that's my side hustle time is in the evenings. And that just means they're back on the computer again, writing code that they wish they could write during their day job, but they're only allowed to write the code that they write for their job. Now they go home and write more code for themselves. Well, I don't want to. What are you going to do about this sloth problem? I mean, the sloth problem is, is a, um, it's a, I'm, I'm genuinely at a crossroads part of the, I'm part, uh, no small part of, of the 
impetus to sell my house and get another house is that I identified my old house as a place where I had kind of descended into a static life where I had my routines. I had my, I had my neighborhood, but there, but I, I had one by one sort of closed down the avenues of like healthy outdoor living. When I first moved to that house, I was coming out of a 15 year part of my life where I woke up in the morning and I went and I walked between five and 10 miles a day. Unless I was like going through a major depressive episode, but the rest of the time I walked that far just in the course of doing business, what were you, what right? Were you doing? If I had to go if I had to go to lunch, if I had to go to the bank, if I had to go meet a friend, if I needed to turn a paper in at the college, if I needed to uh what you know, whatever my job was, or if I was going to see a show later that night, I just walked right. everywhere. I didn't I didn't take a car. So if I did you, you have know, I lived a car? up on for most of from night moving to Seattle in 1990, I didn't I didn't have my first vehicle until I moved my dad down from Alaska and I, and I ended up with that Ford truck with the Chevy right. motor, and that was 98. So that was eight years I didn't have any car at all, and then I had this truck that like to turn it on and to drive it somewhere was its own adventure. But it certainly wasn't a thing I was going to drive down to the crocodile because, like I say, I'd spent eight years. The walking crocodile down is there. a so it is was a, a restaurant bar. Oh, it was it was venue. a venue, okay. yeah, uh, uh, but a, a restaurant bar. But you know, it was downtown. So when it was time to go to a show, I would put my hat on and go walk down to the crocodile. It wasn't a there wasn't anything it would be the last thing I would think to do to drive a car. Why would you even do that? It would be so much more trouble to do it than to just walk the half hour. But in the course of a normal day, I would leave the house a lot earlier. I'd walk down to Broadway. Somebody would say, Hey, why don't you come over and, uh, you know, to my place and we'll talk about this. And we'd walk up to 15th. And then, so I didn't have a Fitbit or anything, but looking at those distances now and realizing Every one of those transactions was a mile mm-hmm. and a half. And so it was an easy five miles a day, just doing mm-hmm. nothing. And if I, if I did two other things and certainly if I went to a show, which I did five nights a week. So, so when I moved into my house back in 2007, it had been 17 years of living that way where, I mean, because I, because I did get a van that I used for touring, but when we weren't touring, I parked the mm-hmm. van. I remember seeing a, a guy I knew in a band driving in town in his van, his, his rock van. And I thought he looked so ridiculous. Like here's a like one person in a 15 passenger van. I was like, where is he going <laughs> to the he, to meet somebody? Like, 
it, he, it's, it's ludicrous that he's driving that big thing in the city even. I mean, just the idea that I knew where he lived and I, and I presumed where he was going and I watched him go in this truck. I was just like, those vans are made for the interstates. They're not, they're not like around town cars. So I moved out to my house and I, I had to drive. But I still, every day, would get out and I'd walk. I'd walk and walk and walk. Um, there just wasn't anything to see. There wasn't anybody to visit down there. There wasn't anywhere to go. Because I was in the suburbs and there wasn't anything there. And so, after a while, you know, I, did, I, I had never been in the business of like, I'm going to go out for a walk. It was always walking places. Mm-hmm. And little by little, and I and my I would babysit my mom's dog and take the take Gibson out for walks, but I I lost all the reason. And pretty soon, I mean, by 2010, I wasn't walking as much, and by 2012, I was. Uh, I was noticing like a day would, and this is before I even had an iPhone. It was just like a day would go by and I would just be, I would have read the New Yorker all day. Um, and by 2015, boy, I felt like, or well, 2013 is kind of the year that I look at and go, what happened in 2013 beats the mm-hmm. shit out of me. Like my daughter was two and I don't know if I did a damn thing. I was just compiling a a resume, which is a thing that I have not. I would love to see a resume. Had to do in my professional life. But um, there's a, there's a friend uh, and listener of, um, of, low these podcasts mm-hmm. whose name is Edward Kaplan and he's a colonel a full bird mm. colonel in the United States Air Force and he enjoys uh, listening to podcasts and he teaches history or or at least did I haven't looked at his CV lately you know the thing about the Air Force is um or the thing about the armed services is that they move you around. Uh, But uh, Ed Kaplan taught history at the Air Force Academy. Was the, um, was like, you know, a history prof. Maybe, maybe the head of the history department Mm. even. Assistant head of the, I, I don't know. I can never tell what the hell they're going on going on about over there. Um, it says here in 2017, he was director of aerospace studies in the department of national security and strategy at the U S army war college in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Uh, prior to joining the war college, Colonel Kaplan had intelligence roles at Beale air force in California flight commander at the Misawa Cryptologic Operations Center. Oh, he was assistant professor at the Air Force Academy, strategic planner at the Directorate of Intelligence on the Joint Staff 
So as you can sort of get a sense here, he's uh, one of these uh, Air Force tech intelligence weirdos mm-hmm. who's extremely dangerous. Dangerous uh, in what way? he said, oh, just dangerous. You could just, I mean, he's probably, he's probably, he, do, he probably doesn't listen to podcasts. He probably listens to me on something they've implanted in oh, my teeth. I see. But Ed Kaplan said uh, a couple of years ago that he had put my name in to be some kind of, um, they have a, they have a thing at the army war college where at the end of the year in the spring, they invite a handful of civilians, civilian, uh, community leaders, thought leaders, influencers Mm -hmm. to come attend the war college for, I think a week and sit with the the newly minted colonels and generals and admirals and whatnot and sort of i mean honestly i'm not 100 percent sure what they do but they but the, oh, I thought the, you were the civilians are invited, invited in. to this and may perhaps spoke at it well and i think what what happens is you've got these uh, the war college is taking these officers who are um who are prominent, who are, are successful within the military and are, you know, they're not the ones that are sort of have reached the rank of major and, and you can see that they you know, that they have, they've, um, they've followed the Peter principle. You know, they're the ones that are going to the war college because they are, they're doing some prep to then go on in the, uh, and take on a larger leadership role. I see. And so they're studying not just like how do we, how do we breach the, the door of the insurgents hideout? They're studying strategy and they're studying politics. You know, they're studying how to do, how to do bigger things, how to be in command of larger scopes at which point at least in the way our country is run and the military is run they need to be reminded that they work for civilians you know the you can spend your lifetime in the military and although i think you're i think you're reminded on paper a lot um that you work for civilians in in practice you don't you work for other military people and it's, and very definitely you don't work for civilians. You're not, you know, you're not out like fraternizing uh, or, or at least like some guy from the local piggly wiggly doesn't come around and tell you like what he, what uh, the way he he wants you to direct Mm -hmm. traffic. But if you're a general and, uh, and again, not a brigadier general in most cases, but the further up you go, the more you have to be aware that, you're going to start interacting with civilians, civilian leaders. Mm-hmm. Like you answer to Congress, right? Really, and and you and you and ultimately the American people, because if you go into and this is what uh, what uh, our friend Colonel Matt Martin, also U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin, retired, uh, and he's the Air Force officer that took me and Jonathan Colton and David Reese to Africa. Oh, yeah. You know, he really opened my eyes to the fact that most people in the military are 
in engaged in logistics jobs and even you know even war fighting people spend an awful lot of time on logistics they got to move all these all this material and all these people from here to there they have to take these shipping containers and get them to the forward operating base and so they get really good at that and they get really really good at it until they become a like a like a bra- super brass and then all of a sudden they're sitting in a room with some guys from congress who are asking them what how we get inside the hearts and minds of a foreign population in a far off land and so often what the what the what the military suggests is they that is some kind of logistical solution mm. give me an ex- give me well, an example well what we need yeah. to do is well it's just the way that we fought the war in iraq i mean the the and the way that we have fought every every war since korea what you don't think is well what is the you know what are what are what's the culture where we are what are the multitude of tribes that have thousand year grudges and relationships with one another how do we how do we understand what their interests are what are our interests here and how do we get those interests to align um what's our what's our real problem with who we perceive to be the enemy and how can we make that other how is that different from say for instance their their traditional adversaries in the region and is that really something we want to get into do we really want to we've got some beef with with these guys do we really want to worm our way into a thousand year grudge match that they have with the neighboring tribe like is that going to work out Mm -hmm. for us no our solution is well what we need to do is cordon off this area and do house to house searches and get all the the men that are in fighting age down into the streets and the ones whose hands smell like gunpowder, we're going to ship them off. And the ones uh, that don't, we're going to put them on a list. And after we do that, we're going to mark that area as being pacified and we're going to move on to the next area. And if we do that, if we go from area to area on a map and we draw red lines around it and say, these people are pacified, the ones whose hands smelled like gunpowder are gone by the time we get to the end of that and every part of the town is circled red, the town will be at peace <laughs> and we will move to the next town. Right. And by doing so, we will draw these, these peace lines on a map. And by the time we get to the end, the country will be at peace and we will, our mission will be accomplished. And if you go in and go, well, geez, but it seems like every time you do that, as soon as you leave, all the guys whose hands didn't smell like gunpowder uh, go back home and learn to shoot a gun because they're so pissed off. And then it's a, you know, then you've got a problem in your rear area, right. as we say. And the response to that is, well, we, you know, we didn't have enough, um, we didn't have enough technology to really accomplish the job. We didn't have enough support from Congress to to do a proper job, and so we need to, you know, we need to. Uh, go back into that area with a redoubled effort and use the same exact techniques we used last time, except, except go harder. 
there's not any real incentive to send sociologists and state department veterans who have spent their entire lives studying that the tribal concerns of that region because the solution those solutions that those people would offer don't involve shipping any shipping containers right there's no like you send the state department guy in and he says well here's the problem None of these people have interests that align with the United States. And if we get in here and try and monkey with this dynamic, it's going to blow up in our face. So what we need to do is, um, you know, is take like a, take a completely different approach, which is to say like, in some cases, like leave the bad guy in power here because to take him out is to create a worse situation, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a thousand, it's just, it's diplomacy. It's, it's global politics and sociology and, and religious studies. I mean, it's fucking what colleges are for, but that doesn't, that's, that's not what the army is good at. What the military is good at. The military is super good at, at basically like, flying in on day one and by day six they've built an entire city in a in a place the air force is fucking genius at terraforming um and building a tiny america anywhere in the world and the army is incredibly good at uh running obstacle courses where there are hostiles all around them and neutralizing that opposition but it's within the vacuum of uh, of um, of the situation, right? They neutralize those people, but they don't. They're not thinking about who their families are, what their. I mean, you just look at Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, um, they went in, they got Osama bin Laden, they and they pulled him out of there. And the the most compelling thing about that movie and about that moment is they left what twenty one kids under the age of eighteen and. And four moms just in there, like, well, killed your dad and all your dads. And we're taking your, we're taking big dad with us and all the computers and you guys stay in school. (laughs) Peace out. (laughs) Now, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I don't know whether you're supposed to put all 20 of those kids on a, on a, um, helicopter and take them to America and send them to Choate. But those if five of those 20 kids don't become super devoted leaders of a global, uh, like terrorist network, I'll put in with you. And, and what's the solution to that? Who knows? I mean, I, but it isn't, but it isn't an army solution, right? It's a something Mm -hmm. else solution. And yeah, unfortunately the world builders of the West too often think that they can go in and bring clean water and erect a couple of schools. And then the people will naturally prefer clean water and schools. And so will abandon female circumcision and abandon, um, like stoning 
and become Democrats. And that doesn't, that has not proved to be true either. So it's not, you know, I, I'm not somebody that's like the state department knows what to do. Like it's, it's super, super complex when America goes out into the world and decides that we're going to start, um, moving chess pieces around just like England wasn't very good at in, in, before. Anyway, the war college, I imagine, and the thing is I often imagine these things to be far greater and more sweeping than they end up being. When I got invited to the conference on world affairs, I imagined I was going to be sitting on a, a panel with a, with an admiral and a head of a Hollywood studio. And, what was it? uh, well, it, in a way it kind of was that, but it was, but the event itself was sort of diversionary. Like it was a, it was, those people did go and get and sit on panels and kind of give talks. But the people that attended the conference on world affairs, which is to say the audience were a bunch of retirees and other sort of interested people who were able to pay to attend these conferences. It was not a, the conference on world affairs did not actually have a goal in mind or a plan in mind. It was a, it was, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a great event, but it was, it was kind of a circle jerk. Maybe that admiral and that head of a Hollywood studio heard something on one of the panels that they were sitting on and went back and conducted their business a different way. That 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 struck me at the end as extremely unlikely. I mean, there there is a certain amount of networking that happens there, so that all of a sudden a Hollywood studio owner and an admiral know each other. But most of that is like butt slapping. <laughs> You know, it's not like maybe they call one another up once in a lifetime and go, Hey, I need your help. But most of it's just like, uh, you know, like they might even get together, but, but it's for cigars. It's like, it's like, um, it's like the ultimate kind of CEO networking where they, they're just, they're in such different spheres the the idea of it i think is great that you would have this conference and that you would you would talk about really big things really big ideas with like leaders across a whole scope with the idea that the answers that people came up with would be employed somewhere that someone would be taking those notes that the conference on world affairs would produce a document of some kind at the end, right. a set of recommendations for the United States, uh, in going forward, solving this problem or this set of problems, but it's much more, it's much more just sort of, um, I mean, rich, famous, successful people are bored just as anyone else is. And if you're not, if you're not somebody that, that wants to take a shit on a toilet made of diamonds, you end up being somebody like this that goes to the, that, that goes to meetings in Switzerland that flies, that flies into his Bilderberg group 
uh, luncheon and then flies out. And what's getting done kind of doesn't matter. I mean, my uncle Cal infuriated my dad one time because he, he flew down to Palm Springs in his company jet in order to have a board meeting with the, the people who ran his Palm Springs enclave because they had received a demand from the staff for a 25 cent an hour raise across the board for everybody that worked there at the smoke tree ranch. And so the entire board of the smoke tree ranch, they all flew in from all around the country. Probably cost more than to have a, a board. the raise for all those people would have cost. Oh, cost more than that raise, uh, over 10 years, just in aviation gasoline to have a board meeting where they voted down the raise because, um, because they felt that, uh, if they gave everybody a 25 cent an hour raise, um, the, it, it was untenable, right? They wouldn't be sustainable and the smoke tree ranch would fall into disrepair and it would become a smoking wasteland. And then they all got back in their fucking jets and they flew back to wherever the hell they live on the same day. And my dad was just storming around like, you've got to be insane. You know, that board meeting cost up $250,000 for 25 cent an hour. You know, my dad's labor, labor at heart always, but also just the pure insanity of it. But from uncle Cal's perspective, well, the, the budget for the, airplane gasoline comes out of a completely different it's unrelated to the smoke tree ranch budget my dad's like you people you people with your fucking shell game but it made perfect sense to uncle cal anyway ed kaplan wanted me to go to the army war college and be one of the civilians and talk to the sit in this class and maybe, maybe all that's happening is I'm sitting and listening for a week. Maybe it's just that these generals, uh, rub, rub elbows with, um, with some snorks. But when I was King Neptune, I rubbed elbows with, um, with some of this top brass with three star Admiral, Nora Tyson, who at the time commanded the, I don't think she commanded, was it the fourth fleet? She commanded, you know, the Pacific fleet, let's say, or, uh, who, uh, Admiral John Tammon, who was a one star at the time. And now I think is a two star and on his way, he's on his way. Tammon was, uh, was then the guy that was running the banger sub base here. And then he got called back to Washington. He was at the Pentagon as director of undersea warfare. And now he's moved on. He's got another one of these job descriptions like Ed Kaplan does where it's like, what are you doing now? Some kind of strategic, like strategery. I I couldn't even make sense of his job description the last time I read it. Nora Tyson's retired. But like I spent a lot of time as, as King Neptune in this in this social group of one, two and three star admirals, because this week seafare week 
was there. It was like one of the funnest things that they did in the air. They got to have parties on their ships. They got to see one another, which they often didn't get to do. You know, in the course of their normal job, they're each running something somewhere. They don't get to all hang out together. And I just, from the moment I arrived on that, at that first party on that first boat, I just marched over to the, to this little cluster of admirals. I was like, make way for the king. (laughs) And they're all my age. And this is something that a lot of people don't know about people in the military or, uh, officers, top ranking officers. They're all nerds. They're deep, deep nerds. Like they all have degrees in mechanical engineering from the like Virginia Polytechnic Institute. Like none of them went to the Naval Academy or even a college you've ever heard of. They all went to these weird little engineering schools. They joined the Navy when they were young and they're, and they love what they do. They love the, they just love machines and they love things that go fast and things that go boom. They're Star Trek people. And I have a lot of experience with nerds. Right. So I really hit it off with this group and, and it was mutual, right? I mean, they, they, um, because they're also like, they're nerds who have power and charisma. You don't get to be a one-star general or admiral if you don't have a certain amount of charisma. Cause there are a lot of people that are vying for each, each level of promotion and the way promotion works. They're like 20 majors and there's only one Lieutenant Colonel job. And there are 20 Lieutenant Colonels and there's only one Colonel job. And you got to make it through, you know, that narrowing aperture. So these are people that are used to talking shit to each other. They're used to, um, they're used to people saluting them, obviously. Anyway, after a week of, of socializing with them, I realized, oh, wow, there, there's a, there is a missed opportunity here. These are, these people, these admirals are absolutely, basically they're Adam Savages. They're peers of Adam Savage in age, in inclination, but they are never going to meet Adam Savage and Adam Savage is never going to meet them. And if they did meet, if they sat around for two hours, they would realize that they, they had an incredible overlap in knowledge, in interest and in attitude because at least in my experience, none of these top brass were saber rattlers and uh, hardcore anything. They weren't hardcore. They were, you know, they were smart people who read, who read and it wasn't an option for them. I mean, it's, it's actually against the law for them to appear in uniform and say, I support this or I support Hmm. that. So they spend their whole adult lives, their whole careers, at least, if you say, well, where do you stand on this? 
you know, at least publicly, they go, well, I can't comment on that. But a surprising number of them, uh, a surprising number of them, extremely sympathetic. It, it, it. I mean, if you ask them, uh, if you ask them the question, if the president tells you to bomb Korea now, to, like an hour from now, what will you do? What will you do, Admiral? The only answer they can give is yes, I will bomb mm. Korea. I serve at the pleasure of the president. Now, whether when the moment comes to pull the trigger, what, what they'll actually do in that moment, I don't, I don't think we can know. And having met this group of people, I'm, I feel much more reassured, mm. frankly, because in talking to them, I felt very much that in that moment, they would not act blindly. They were, um, they did reserve for themselves a certain amount of discretion. And maybe that is, that's certainly scary from a standpoint of, um, that a lot of them are juggling nukes. Right. But hopefully there are enough, uh, there are enough sort of turn your key, sir situations that prevent them from just going rogue. Mm -hmm. But also I think it, it, it gives them an opportunity to say, no, you know what? I'm not going to turn my key. Let's listen. Let's listen for that one more signal of confirmation or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're anyway, the prospect of going to the army war college filled me with a lot of enthusiasm and expectation. If only that I would get to meet these people and learn from them a little bit and then bring that back, bring that back to road oh, right. and to friendly right. fire and to omnibus and to Ro Roderick on the line and be able to say like, here's, here's, here is something that I saw that, that most of us don't have access to. And, you know, let's get this, let's get this information in play, like this new experience. Well, I didn't get accepted oh, two years ago when yeah. I applied because I applied in a kind of lackadaisical way because Ed Kaplan contacted me kind of out of the blue. And it was just like when I met Matt Martin, you know, Matt Martin sent me an Remind email me that, that said, that, I just, that again? oh, he's the, he's the Colonel that took us. Oh, to that's Africa. the one that took you to, okay. I just got those two guys confused. Sorry. So Matt Martin wrote, because I said something about drone warfare you know, I say a lot of things about drone warfare and Matt Martin disagrees with me almost 100%. But he wrote me, you know, out of the blue and he was like, you, you know, you're, you're talking out of your ear. And I said, yeah, well, why don't you, why don't you take it, uh, on the lamb there, uh, random dude. And he was like, well, I, maybe you should read my book that I wrote about drone warfare. <laughs> and I said, Oh, Oh, I guess you're not just some, well, actually. And so he sent me the book and I read it and I liked it. And it, and we became friends. And with Ed Kaplan, it was the same. He sent me an email and he was like, Hey, uh, you know, I want, do you want to go to the army war college? And I was like, yeah, do you want to go to Bumbershoot? Because I think both things are, I think I have a better chance of getting you into Bumbershoot than you do of getting me into the war college. And he was like, actually I teach at the war college. 
and uh, and I was excited. But I didn't, you know, I sent him like this little bio, basically. This is your sloth acting again. Instead of spending a week yeah. preparing for it, you spent 10 minutes in between shows and phone and, yeah. You know. Right. And it was just like, John Roderick is a guy who's got some, I don't know, podcasts or whatevs. He's in some bands. Anyway, he's, he'd be cool at your thing. Well, I didn't get in. And I don't know. The thing is, the um, the selection process is opaque even to Colonel right. Kaplan. He's like, I mean, I'm on the, I do the thing. I submitted you. I'm, you know, I'm professor here. You would think that would carry some weight. But, and I don't know. You know, the thing about the, like, a lot of this stuff, the people that get selected are leaders of the community, which generally means. That's you. Well, no, in general, when people talk about that, they're talking about sports figures and chamber of commerce people, you and you, um, guys that, uh, guys or gals who work for nonprofits that are not too controversial. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the director of the red cross or, um, somebody that works for the Gates Foundation or, you know, it, there is, there is within the world a, like conformity is recapitulating. Mm-hmm. If you're a conformist, you want conformity. And if you are in the army, you're certainly a conformist. Right. And so you're looking for people that can be, uh, that are going to check out and the people that are going to check out are from a pretty, you know, uh, although it's pretty broad set of jobs and experiences, it's a pretty narrow Mm -hmm. band of where you are in life. You know, um, no mayor is going to do it, but, uh, like a deputy mayor maybe. And, and, I don't know. Honestly, I've never looked at a list of the people that have done it, but I have a pretty good sense of who it is. So this year, I I wrote Colonel Kaplan because I didn't apply last year because I was a little stung yeah. about it. Just like when I didn't get back into the conference on world affairs, I was super mm. stung because there's some people that go every right. year that have been every year for right. 30 years. Um, you know, Roger Ebert famously went to the conference on world affairs for 40 years or whatever until he was the he was the king of it and he had he had just recently died when i went for the first time so everyone was still mourning him but i met several people who you know the implication was well now that you've been invited we'll see you next year and then i didn't get reinvited and i underperformed let's be honest that was before I started taking bipolar medication. So I contacted Colonel Kaplan this year and said, I want to try and go to the war college again. And I think at first he, he sort of felt like, well, we tried that. And I was like, let's just, let's just try it again. And so I wrote, I wrote a resume and, uh, and the resume is, <clears throat> you know, I'm trying to think of everything that I can say 
that will make the selection committee understand that I am a, a bona fide, respectable, relatively conformist, <laughs> normal American. <laughs> In every way. I mean, these are, these are and words and that if someone were to say to me, tell me about John Roderick, those are the first three, four, five terms I would have used. Conformist, yes, right, regular, exactly. average. And that's what I've been trying to tell everybody all this uh -huh. whole time. <laughs> but the, what, what I have and what I think they do want is they want to get the word out that they are, they want to integrate the army with the world okay. at, at a certain level. Like Ed Kaplan is a great example. He's a intellectual and he would be an intellectual if he were teaching at the university of Pennsylvania. He would be an intellectual if he were at Berkeley. Was that a submarine sound? What was that? I did not hear it. Oh, there was like a boop, beep, boop. Something, something's happening the with your computer over there. And it says we've been talking uh, for too I, long. It was Ed Kaplan. <laughs> That's that right. He's, he's, he's hacked into your computer. He does not approve of being referred to as an intellectual. But the thing about it is he teaches at the war college. So we don't think of him as an intellectual, right? We don't think of them as intellectuals. When we hear war college, we think that they're in there drawing lines on a map, right? And saying like, well, if two tanks come at you this way, then you send your tanks over this way. And I, I feel like at that level, there's a desire in the officer corps to be understood by the public and to be thought of as a as a a branch of the government and a branch of the, you know that because they think of themselves as an important part of the american of american public right. life they've devoted their entire lives to serve the united states and they don't they're, they don't want to be marginalized. They don't want their work to be to be thought of as just logistics. And they definitely don't want to be lumped in with, you know, the worst elements of our culture that, um, that just want blood at all costs. So they want, I think, somebody or a group of people who are going to go to this, have a positive experience, and then bring it back to their communities and say, let me tell you right. what I learned. And boy, they don't know what they're getting into with me. I'm going to have a lot to, I'm going to have a lot of, of um, I mean, I have a lot of reach. I could go, to, I could attend an event like that and then actually share it with a significant yeah. group of people. That might have, and that might have reverberative effects. So we'll see. I've got my resume, been working on it. My daughter was very frustrated with me yesterday because she was like, it's sunny out. Let's go play. And I was like, I have to write this letter where I'm talking about all the amazing things that I've done. She just rolled her little eyes. Ugh. <laughs>